0: Okay, so we're in week three of a series um, that is actually an extension of our previous series. Um, We spent four weeks talking about prayer, and we kept kind of touching on um, upward prayers in our last series, but not really focusing on them. We focused primarily on outward prayers, where we pray for the things that are out there that we really want God to bring in here, where the subject of the prayer is stuff um, that we desperately need, healing, wisdom, money, things, stuff. Outward prayers that we're praying that God will bring in here. And then we we talked about inward prayers where we journey with God into our guts and uh and we make confession and we uh, and we repent and we we do a deep inner work. It's when, when God helps us to work on the part of the iceberg you can't see, um, the stuff that's underwater. Um and like I say, we hinted, talked about the the importance of upward prayers, but didn't really spend much time on it, so we decided to kind of extend that series four more weeks to talk about upward prayers or worship, um, where the subject of the prayer is God himself, where the focus is on God himself, and we call that worship. And uh, so far, uh, we're titling this series Designed for Worship, and, uh, and we kind of covered the intellectual, philosophical side of it. Week one, we talked about how God created us um, for worship and how we will eventually return to that same place. We looked at literally the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, and how we were created to be in this position where we were on top of the creation and yet firmly under God, uh, and in this place of, of subservience and worship to our Creator. And we talked about Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book, where God says He's going to return us back to that place, that And and there's a lot of that original garden language in in Revelation 22 um, and how we were created for it and we will return to it. And it's uh, it's good to know that the plans of God, the purposes of God were not destroyed by sin. Um, They were just put on hold for a little bit. But we will return back to that place. So we talked about what it looks like to live in between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22 in the middle, in the mess that's in between, in between what we were created for and what we will return to and uh, and, how, and what it looks like to live in worship to the Father. And then last week we moved kind of from the frontal cortex to the limbic cortex. We kind of went from the intellectual, cerebral side to the emotional um, side. We looked at the story of this woman that got worship all wrong. It was clumsy and inappropriate because she was overwhelmed with the collision of love and shame and relief and joy and guilt and fear and peace and all of that beautiful emotion exploded out of her in this response to the grace of God um, as Jesus forgave her many, his words, sins. And, uh, and everybody in the room was uncomfortable with it except for Jesus. And he just received um, this beautiful act of worship. So we've covered worship from kind of an intellectual perspective with our original design. Uh, and then we 've also covered it from kind of an emotional perspective as this emotional response to the love of god and this week we 're going to do uh, we 're going to cover it from the practical pragmatic side we 're going to talk about the pragmatic side of worship um, are there any pragmatists in are any of you like real pragmatists like you want to know does it work like does that 's the way a lot of us are some of us you know are just we 're drawn to that pragmatic approach do we really Care about the philosophical arguments or emotions make us uncomfortable, but we want to know will it help my life? Is this good for me? Is this something I need? Um, does it have a useful purpose and that 's what we 're going to talk about as I kind of dug into it um, uh, I want to share some of the mo- some of the latest and greatest pragmatic gadgets. any, any gadget people in here i 'm a total gadget freak. Um, <laughs> this is kind of fun, so I looked up like the hottest new things like this is what 's on the on the uh, on the fringe of new gadgets, uh, I thought it'd be a little fun to look at some of them. Um, this is what the smartest minds in the world are coming up with right now um, to make a, to help us to live better. The first one is uh, is a little bobber that Bluetooths to your phone that you can just throw it in the water and it will put on your phone where the fish are. <laughs> so you can just you know you don't even have to work at it anymore. You can just look on your phone and. Uh, and uh, they've even got one that like motors around like a little motorboat you can control with your phone. So if there's no fish, you can move it until there are and just, yeah. And I know some of you just have got your phones out. You're like, I'm getting that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> no. But uh, let's move on to something a little more ridiculous. This is a Bluetooth smart toothbrush that not only coaches your kids on how to brush their teeth, but it notifies them when they haven't brushed long enough. It talks to them keep brushing <laughs> you can t- you can t- and it will send you a report card on your app as to how your kids are doing um, in the toothbrushing department. So you can make sure they're, uh, they're up to speed. So yeah, you just download the app and you can keep track of your kids oral hygiene. It's, in other words, if you want an absurd amount of inter- information about your kids, you can get this, but it's not just your kids. You can actually uh, put yourself under the same pressure. Um, they have a smart water bottle, and this thing's actually pretty incredible. This thing will track your water consumption, which I do not want to know. Um, coffee, I would use a smart coffee cup. That would be amazing. You have not had enough caffeine today. <laughs> um, no wonder you're so. No wonder you're so grumpy. Uh, but this will actually—you enter all your information, it will factor. Your, uh, your body weight, the current temperature and relative humidity. humidity, And if you link it to your smartwatch, it'll even track your movement for the day. And it'll say, man, based on how much you move and how hot it is, you need more water. And it will tell you if you've had enough. You just, yeah. Uh, and fear not, if, uh, if you want even more pressure, <laughs> this one's awesome. It is a smart fork that not only weighs your food, <laughs> But it tells you how fast you're eating, and it tells you, hey, slow down, you're eating too fast. And uh, and if you link it with your, with your weight loss app to where you enter what you ate, it will tell you how much of whatever it was you ate so that it can, yeah. It's not just you, it's even your plants. This is a smart pot, which will track the nutrients and moisture level of the soil you put in so that you can open up the app and see if... Enter the kind of plant you plant in there, and it'll tell you if it's a good condition for that plant, if your plant will prosper. I could actually use that. I can kill anything. And if you're not convinced that the smartest people on the planet have really done their job, there's this one. The digital Bluetooth smart egg tray, which literally does nothing but keep track of how many eggs you have and how long they've been in there. And you (laughs) sync it to your phone, and it tells you how many eggs you have in your fridge at any given moment, and how old they are. <laughs> Granted, it's only twelve bucks, so it's not like it's you know um, mine's supposed to get here on Tuesday. But no, <laughs> kidding. Um, but do <laughs> we really need a, a smart egg tray? I mean, feels like the smart people could be working on something better. I, that's just me. I, I'm being judgmental, but feel like there's better things they could work on. Not all gadgets actually improve our lives, but uh, as we look today at at worship as a gadget, worship as a thing that we need to make our lives better, I think we'll find that this ancient discipline actually does greatly improve our lives. So let's start with our text. We're actually reading in Acts 16, starting with verse 16. If you want to read along in your Bible, if not, it will be on the screen. One day, as we were going, this is Luke writing in the book of Acts, One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her master by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they've come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them in the inner dungeon. And clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the words of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. This is the word of the Lord. Just to give you a little bit of background, um, Paul visits this town um, in a very unique and new way for Paul. He is out of his um, depths in this moment. Uh, in case you uh, don't have like a first century map just kind of burned in your brain. Um, if you do, shame on you. Get rid of that. You've got more important things to remember. Um, the church started down here where this little red circle is. Uh, this is Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was crucified. Uh, and because of persecution, um, the church kind of had to scatter and it relocated its headquarters up the coast in, uh, in Antioch. Uh, this is where Paul kind of first found his first church home. He he really joined the church uh, here in Antioch after he was converted. Uh, and it was from here that he kind of became a missionary and church planter. Um, this was his kind of home base that he launched from. So when he went out spreading the gospel, he planted churches and stayed mostly in this area. Um, this was Galilee back then, modern-day southern Turkey. Um... And in Paul's day, uh, he went from town to town uh, sharing the gospel. And Paul had this kind of rhythm, this habit, this routine that he stuck to, where he always started in the synagogues. Because for quite some time, Jerusalem had been the center of a lot of um, conflict and strife. Uh, it had been conquered, and then the people who conquered them were conquered. And, and so they kind of changed uh, ruling nations, and they were conquered, and they changed ruling nations again, and then that guy died, and his kingdom was kind of split up, and, and so for a short season, they got their independence back, and then they got conquered again, and every time this happened, Jews were mistreated and killed and tortured, and, and so they had this thing we call the, the, the diaspora, the, the dispersing, the scattering, and Jews kind of scattered out of Israel um, to avoid all this conflict, and they made their way up into Galilee, all over the place, in every little town. And the way they kind of maintain their Jewishness in all of these non-Jewish towns was a synagogue. They kind of set up this home base called a synagogue, kind of like our church, where they could kind of maintain their traditions, their rituals, and read Torah and debate and, and kind of hang on to their Jewishness in a non-Jewish space. And this was perfect for Paul because he was able to go through each of these towns as a Jew and kind of just go into the synagogue like any Jew would. And, and as they're discussing Torah, Paul was able to discuss how Jesus was the fulfillment of Torah. And it gave him a kind of a perfect starting point. And he didn't get much traction in the synagogue. Usually he would convert a couple Jews. But they had these people um, that were Gentiles that were really drawn to uh, the Jewish God. The, the, the kind of one true God. And so they would, they would come to synagogue, but they had to sit outside because they weren't Jewish. So they weren't really allowed in, but they were, they were interested in what was going on. And so in comes Paul, who's a Jew who can talk about Torah with the other Jews, but he can also say, because of this Jesus, everyone is included. Well, this sounded fantastic to these Gentiles who were already kind of interested in the Jewish God. And so they would usually join with Paul along with just a couple of Jews, and they would start a church. And in each of these little towns, Paul was starting churches, and he did it this way, from town to town to town. It says that he followed his habit of going to the synagogue, and usually, when the synagogue would reject him, he would go. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles, and he would take that group of, of Gentiles who had been kind of drawn to the Jewish God, and tell them about Jesus, and and plant a church. And he had done this over and over and over again, and it worked well. <clears throat> so when Paul returns uh, to Antioch, and then. Decides to go on another missionary journey. He kind of made his way back through all those same churches, see how they were doing, check up on them, see if they were still growing in the faith. And then he launches out into this next area, which is uh, up here. Back then it was called Asia. It'd be northern Turkey today. Um, And this is where stuff kind of got weird for Paul. Uh, The Bible doesn't really give us much detail. But it says that the Holy Spirit kept Paul from going really anywhere to preach. He kept trying to go to another place. He said the Holy Spirit stopped us. And he tried to go somewhere else. He wasn't allowed. And, and so he just literally wanders through all that land and doesn't really tell, talk to anybody about Jesus. It's like nothing's happening. He's really kind of stymied. And then he has a dream one night of some people uh, across the ocean in Greece saying, come over here, we need you. And so Paul and his team literally get on a ship and they go across the Aegean Sea and they land over here, right there, on the other side. This is the very first time the gospel ever goes into Europe. Up until then, it was only a Middle Eastern thing. And for the very first time, the gospel hits European land. Uh, And Paul goes um, into Greece with the gospel. And he lands at Philippi, um, this very... uh, this uh, kind of coastal town um, that was in itself kind of a weird town because there were uh, kind of native Philippians who had lived there forever and ever. But when Rome had brought back um, its soldiers from conquering all the lands it could conquer, it had to have a place for them. It didn't want them in Rome because you don't want that many kind of hooligans hanging out in Rome. And so they would just give them cities. Here, go have Philippi. And and so Philippi's got these, the, the like older, and they're kind of the poor class, the native class, and then they've got these Romans that now live there. And, but the one thing it didn't have was Jews. There was no synagogue. So Paul suddenly is out of his element. He, he doesn't have his normal routine to fall back on. He has no idea um, really how to even get started. And so he's just wandering, um, him and his team, and they bump into a prayer meeting. Um, it's a bunch of women at the river praying and so they they start there. They start at this kind of riverside prayer meeting, and they start telling people about Jesus and he finds a a, a small group of women who are interested in hearing more, and one of them happens to be wealthy uh, and she kind of becomes the team's benefactor. She takes them into the house, the church moves into her home, and they they kind of have their i guess European beachhead like the the point at which they can kind of launch out. And uh, and so that's what's going on just before today's story. You know, Paul is for the first time in uncharted territory. He's in unknown waters. Uh, he Before this ministry was fairly easy to him. I mean, I say easy. He was beaten, and it wasn't easy by any means. Um, but, in fact, uh, Brent was talking about, you know, statistics, uh, you know, that, there's, what, 80 million evangelicals in the country. Um, it's kind of interesting to think about. Uh, there's 167 million people in America that claim one or uh, one of the flavors of Christianity. 167 million um, Christians that claim Christianity in some flavor. Uh, there's 215 million Christians in the globe that live under fear of death for being a Christian. We are in the minority um, for our kind of rights and privileges here. If you're talking uh, averages using st- real statistics, the average Christian on the planet is a 22-year-old brown-skinned woman. Um, we are not in uh, the majority. What's ironic is she hasn't read C.S. Lewis. She uh, does not care about our theological debates. Um, she's not interested in which um, uh, hill songs are theologically correct or not. She's, she's a woman who is uh, under threat of death for her faith and she's likely the person who's going to get to speak to the next generation. And so we do not, uh, we have a great privilege here. We are not in the majority. That Christianity does not, speaking of averages, look like this. This is an absolute privilege. And we can't take that for granted. Um, and that was the kind of, so Paul lived closer to her than than me. So when I say easy, I mean he knew what he was where to go and who to talk to. It was not an easy life. He was um, in constant threat. But... Easy compared to Philippi. So in Philippi, um, once he finds this woman, um, it, it seems like they're kind of deciding to slow grow the church. Like, it, no big conflicts. They're, uh, it, from what we know, he got a job in Philippi. He's, he's building tents, um, which probably meant he, he tanned hides and things. Uh, and he's just going about his business. Until this demon-possessed kind of sorceress, shows up. It reads like this. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting these men are servants of the most high God and they come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated turned her to the demon within her and said I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now up until this point <clears throat> Paul kind of has a live and let live. This, this passage kind of confuses people because a lot of times we're like why, why? number one why is she saying true things like she's she's speaking the truth with that kind of feels weird to us this demon possessed girl is like telling the truth about paul and number two why why does it take paul so long you know to cast a demon out of her and it's kind of confusing but uh here's the reason paul seemed at this point content to kind of live and let live he's he's not really making much of a stir he wasn't seeking this girl out to help her he you know she was in a bad situation but he wasn't really trying to help her if anything he was trying to keep his head down, uh, minding his own business. Because this place did not have kind of a safe place like every other place. It didn't have a synagogue where he could just kind of fit in and 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 kind of hide under the covering that the synagogue in each town had before this. Um, he's in a place where um, where the gods are not only very territorial, but... Worshippers are very um, uh, kind of aggressive about that territory. And so Paul does not have like a safe place to do ministry. So the last thing he wants to do when, his, when, when this kind of brand new ministry is in a really kind of vulnerable state is to come out and, and, and scream from the rooftops, you know, we're here to save you. You know, he doesn't really want that in a place where that was simply not allowed. So he's going to work underground this looks way more like a chinese church today where it's subversive it's underground and you keep your head down as the church grows kind of under the surface and in comes this this girl who wants to expose it and so she's speaking the truth but it's not necessarily you know helping the ministry so this would be like somebody in 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 china right now, going, I know there's a church in this apartment, and you scream it out. This is where they're worshiping. This is where they're worshiping. Totally speaking the truth, totally saying something that's honest and real, but not very helpful, as everybody is arrested and thrown in prison. And so that's kind of what happens here. Uh, Paul's trying to lay low, um, but this girl won't let him, and finally he kind of loses his cool. And he, he... comes out. This girl is basically screaming, "Hey, these are monotheists, and they're they're here to spread the gospel." Like, puts it out there. And Paul, you know, makes a very bold statement, kind of like one of those when you when you make one of those Facebook posts and you think you're doing something good, and then you know you get completely attacked and beat up. My wife, anytime she walks by and sees like my phone on Facebook and I'm typing, she's like, "Babe, don't don't do it, don't." That's what Paul does. Paul says, you know, finally breaks. And he's like, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it's over from there. Paul's arrested, imprisoned. Um, And so let's recap Paul's position just a little bit. For the first time ever, um, he's kind of suffering ministry dryness. He's traveling through uh, what was his Asia, you know, north and western Turkey, getting nowhere. He's never experienced that before. He's experiencing ministry dryness. He's, he's traveling but can't find anywhere the Holy Spirit will let him preach. He moves into a completely new culture where there's no synagogue, settles in with a ladies' prayer meeting, um, finally gets something up and going, and then the coronavirus hits. Well, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up stories. He, uh, this, yeah. this demon-possessed girl blows his cover, And threatens this tiny new ministry. And before he knows it, he's in prison. So in Paul's kind of day, welcome to 2020. If anyone has the right to throw in the towel, if anyone has the right to say, clearly God does not want me here. He's not opening up any doors. If anyone has the right to whine and moan and complain, it's Paul. But this is what he actually does. It says around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Paul worships. In the midst of all this frustration and doubt and anger and probably even guilt, Paul chooses to worship. Now, throughout this service, we've been kind of following the literal, throughout this series, I mean, we've been following the literal translation of of both the Hebrew and Greek words for worship, which is to bow down or to prostrate oneself. We've been saying that worship is a posture of the heart, where we, we, we bow our hearts before God. But in this story, Paul and Silas don't just make sure their hearts are properly submissive to God. They actually broke out the full gadget of worship, like songs, like the full mechanism of They prayed and they sang hymns to God right out loud in front of God and everybody. It says that that everybody in the jail heard them doing this. So in the face of their doubt, they worshipped. In the face of their fear, they worshipped. In the face of their pain and anger and disappointment, they worshipped. In fact, I would say that Paul and Silas not only worshipped in spite of those things, but they actually worshipped to cope with those things. And this is not a new thing in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Early in the story of these first Jesus followers, the very first time Peter and John were persecuted for believing in Jesus, they told the church how they had been threatened and commanded by the leadership of their town to never speak in this name again. With that threat still ringing in their ears, this is the church's response. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leaders, the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted up their voices together, praying to God, O oh, sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor, through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did the, they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle and rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened in this very city. The first time they realized in a very tangible way that following Jesus was likely to cost them something. was likely to, to, to have a high price tag in their lives. I mean, remember, they had just recently watched this same group of leaders crucify Jesus. They, so... This is still very recent in their memory. They just watched these people kill the most powerful man they had ever dreamed of, and now they're threatening them. They know what could happen here. This threat is very, very real. And in the face of that stark reality, they choose to tell God how amazing He is. Oh, Sovereign Lord, Creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, You said this was going to happen. You called it. You're awesome. You saw this moment. Worship in the face of the darkest moments was a habit for the early church. Last week we talked about worship as an overflowing of gratitude and and love that is rooted in knowing both how broken we actually are and how deeply loved we actually are. This is very different from what's happening this week. This week, worship is being used like a weapon to fight off the enemy's most powerful attacks. This isn't worship because we're wired to worship. This isn't worship because we've got this jumbled up bunch of emotions we want to pour out to God. This is worship as a choice, like choosing the perfect tool to do a specific job. And if you go deep enough, you find it's always been this way. In Joshua chapter 6, as the Israelites are getting ready to fight their very first fight in the promised land, and remember, they were taking. They spent forty years wandering. The previous generation did because they were scared of this exact fight. They were scared of this moment, and so the last generation didn't get to come in because they were afraid of this moment. And now the second generation of Egyptian refugees are are standing at this moment, starting to to. to gather their troops, and the Scripture tells us that they, the very first people to go were the worship leaders. The priests in the ark. They sent them first, and then the army followed the worshipers. The soldiers were to follow the priests who led the worship. So when Israel fought literal battles with sword and spear and blood and death, they still fought with worship. God first, then Right there in their proper place, the soldiers. All throughout the Bible, we we'll see it. In fact, once you start to see it, once you start to see how this works, you can't you can't not see it. It's everywhere. Every every time one of the the Jewish uh, kind of big name guys got into a tough situation, they they stop and they tell God how amazing He is. As I was preparing for this message, I got stuck between this really short, simple message that would have taken about three minutes to give and wanting to do kind of an entire survey of the Old Testament and, and the millions of times this, this pops up. The short version of the sermon goes like this. Worship changes your perspective. It changes what you see. Have you guys ever seen those crazy perspective pictures that everybody does now? They're, they're kind of fun. I love these. Look at this one. This was kind of cool. The woman's made to look small enough to kind of dangle in one hand. Or you can make a load look way heavier than it is. Ordinary sunglasses made to look so big you can't even imagine being able to carry them. Or even more ominous. An ordinary shoe, you know, that can crush you. And I hope the object lesson is, is obvious, but... Your enemy would love to make you feel like safety and security is completely accessible. Like if you just do everything right, you'll be safe and secure. As it dangles you like a doll. Or how about our responsibilities and duties? Our enemy has this way of, of, of making it feel like if we live a life of obedience... It's heavy. If our enemy has his way, it looks like this. It looks like, how can I ever carry all that? And You never get to understand the joy of obeying God. He won't let you do that. He'll, he'll set things up so it, it looks like it's a, it's a terrible burden. It's always ironic because when you talk to, to somebody who has kind of moved out of that place, you're like, Man, but I hate obeying all the rules. You're like, what rules? I don't really pay much attention to rules. I just love serving God. The enemy won't frame it that way. He'll frame it like this, where it's like, how would I ever carry all that? And of course, there's the shoe. How many of us have lived under the weight of our own failures? It's crushing. Now the truth is, very different from the pictures, right? It's opposite, in fact. The dangling woman is very close to the same size as the man. The sunglasses are small enough to fit in the guy's pocket. And the shoe is the size of the other shoes the people are wearing. What's off is the perspective. And if we let him, our enemy will show us the wrong perspective in every single situation. And what's crazy about it is he doesn't even have to lie. He just frames it wrong. There's no real lie in these pictures. There's no photo editing, there's no Photoshop. It's just just setting it up just right. Just a picture of two people. Just a picture of a guy in a pair of sunglasses. Nothing's been altered. Just a boot and two people, nothing but the facts. You can you can tell me how dangerous the world is. You can make a long list. You can tell me how much our country is teetering on the brink of destruction. You can prove to me the with real data. Just how much we're dangling over an abyss. And you wouldn't even be lying. You can make a list of all the responsibilities we have as humans today from climate to race relations to the education system to the state of developing nations in the world to human trafficking to the homeless to the persecuted church all over the globe to the needy in our own community. There are 10,000 things we should be doing to make our world a better place. It can be a crushing weight to hold it all up. You can make a list of your sins and failures. You can list the sins you've committed, the ones that You didn't even really mean to do harm but gave in to temptation. You can name the times you knew better but just did it because you wanted to. You can even probably dream up stuff you didn't even know was a sin where you contributed to and invested in systems that hurt people even though you weren't personally trying to hurt them. You can certainly come up with enough to grind you on the ground like a cigarette butt. And you wouldn't have to tell a single lie. All you have to do is forget God. All you have to do is take Him out of the picture. And the perspective is totally different. All you have to do is forget that a sparrow doesn't even fall without God's permission. Let alone us. We are not dangling. All you have to do is forget that greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And that He has equipped us to carry the load He's given us. And all you have to do to be crushed by shame is to forget the cross. You just have have to forget that Jesus loves you so much that He endured the cross and death to save you from the crushing weight of sin and death. Our enemy doesn't even have to lie to us. He just has to get us to take our eyes off God. And in a prison cell around midnight, when the entire trip... Seemed like it was fated to fail. Paul chose to look at the world the way it really is. However it might feel like he was dangling, however big my responsibilities might feel, however crushing my failures, the truth is, the truth is that God is bigger. God is bigger. And that's what I love about worship. It is the truth. It is the truth. This isn't just saying like affirmations, like looking at yourself in the mirror and, and saying something you're trying to get to become reality. I've never been good at those. I've never been good at just saying something. You are good enough and smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Anybody remember Smolly from Saturday Night Live? That just may not be true. You may not be good enough. You may not be smart enough, and people may not like you. No matter how many times you say it, you can't just make it true. But worshiping God is never a lie. It's never an empty affirmation. Worship isn't just an outpouring of how good we feel about God. And sometimes it is that. But it's way more than that. Worship is, is how we fix our perspective. It's how we refocus our eyes where they should be. It's how we see things the way they really are. So how do we respond to this? When we sing worship songs, we're not just singing to God. When we sing Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness, My God, that is who you are. We aren't just telling God that. We are telling God that. We are just doing that. We recognize and believe that that's who he is. We're also doing that to tell ourselves that. We're telling our hearts that this is who God is. I love how well Psalms 42 says that it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. The psalmist sings to his own soul. Why are you Why do you have everything out of perspective? Why are you seeing everything wrong, oh my soul? Hope in God. Because here's the deal. Your problems are too big for you. They are. The world is super dangerous. You can die a thousand different ways. There are a ton of things you should be worried about every day from your diet to how you discipline your kids to where your coffee is sourced to which streaming platform you should use and support and which ones you should boycott to what you should recycle and to who you should vote for. There's a million things you can burden yourself with. And you will get it wrong and screw up a million times. And the guilt and shame of that is eternal. If you stand alone, you are doomed. Period. But, and that is my favorite Bible word, but. If you stand alone, you are doomed, but you don't stand alone. We talked about the Israelites fighting the very first fight in the promised land. The the previous generation refused to go in because they had their perspective off. They went in the sea, they looked around, they were like, they are huge, they are walled cities, We are grasshoppers in their sight. It was like the boot and the two little people. We are grasshoppers in their sight. And when the second generation crossed in, they put the ark first. They changed the perspective, They, they flipped it around. And with God at the front of the charge, everything looked different. Same cities. Same people, change of perspective. We get to choose what we look at. We can look at our problems, or we can look at God. And that choice is worship. When God says, worship, no gods but me, he's, he's not afraid that, that like some false god might get some of our worship and it's going to hurt his ego. Like That's not where God's coming from. He knows that what we look at is going to look the biggest to us. And that we can completely screw up our lives looking at the wrong thing. So he's like a parent going, hey, over here, look over here, look at me. Do not look that way. There's danger that way. Look at me, look at me. He's saying if you keep your eyes the way they should be, if you keep your eyes on me, if you worship me, the cares of this world suddenly grow strangely dim. So we worship because we're created to do so. Like it or not, we're wired to worship. We will worship something. We worship because we're overwhelmed with the love and emotions that God pours out on us, and so we, we just kind of explode that back on God in worship. And we worship because that is what makes our life manageable. Our world is a mess. And I would not want to face 2020 without a steady worship routine. Our next series is actually entitled Surviving the Apocalypse. I'm really excited about it. And as we've been kind of studying for it, Esther's gonna preach one week. It's, we've been talking about it a lot. It's 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 readjusted my it's my perspective. It's shown me how many times God's been through twenty twenty. Like how many times God's been through through moments where it seemed like everything was falling apart. And God brought his people through. Every time. We're going to focus on four different apocalypses that have happened. And when everything looked lost and doomed, and it wasn't because God was there. 2020 has been horrible. But the more I've focused on God, the more I've realized that God is way bigger than 2020. 2020 ain't got nothing on God. 2020 is bigger than me. Let's get that straight right now. 2020 is way more than I need. But it's tiny compared to God. So we've been closing uh, each sermon uh, lately by praying a prayer together. Um, Today I'd like to do a variation of that. I want to read an affirmation directly from Scripture. It's found in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 35. I think it's a a great perspective verse, especially in 2020. So let's read this together, and then we'll gather around the table and sing one last song. Read with me if you would. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that we have... Sorry, I got lost. Let's start over. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, neither fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.